and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Mark. Thank you for joining me once again. Uh, this week's case was is written by Bethan. Uh, she was really hoping to be able to record it with me or even to record it on her own um, so that you guys could hear her beautiful voice. But unfortunately, we've not been able to make it happen. So it is just me again but she is inching uh, closer towards a return, so it won't be long and we'll, uh, we'll have her back in the fold. Before we jump into today's case, let's take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. Uh, so many thanks to Alexandra Diego and also to Lisa Dunstan. Thank you both so much. If you would like to sign up to support us via Patreon, then just head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. We've got loads and loads of exciting stuff going on over there. We've got competitions, bonus episodes. We've got a really active book club. Uh, We're currently reading Out of My Depth by Anne Darwin. Uh, She's the wife or was the wife of Canoe Bellend, John Darwin, the guy that faked his own death. Um, Could be a future case for us, actually, that one. Uh, It's a fascinating book, really interesting, uh, really easy read as well, which I'm always uh, up for. And um, yeah, very much looking forward to discussing that one uh, with all of my fellow book club people uh, next month. I think we're meeting on the 12th. So uh, so yeah, that's exciting. So yeah, if you do want to join in all of this fun, uh, then yeah, just check us out on Patreon. So this week's case has been suggested by one of our listeners, Daniel Hendry. It's a case that has never strayed too far from his mind, a case that happened near to where he lives. And we do get a lot of cases suggested to us, and there's no way we could cover all of them. Um, But we are always really grateful when people get in touch with a suggestion, because quite often it's a case that we have never heard of, or even it could be a case that we have heard of, but we'd completely forgotten about. So please do continue to get in touch with us uh, with your suggestions. They do go on a list and we explore them in further detail. And um, we, we have already covered quite a few listener suggestions, but there will certainly be some more. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Daniel, for getting in touch with this one. This case actually happened, uh, as I said, near to where Daniel lives. And l- a lot of cases are suggested to us uh, uh, from people uh, who live down the road from where, where the um, crime took place. And I think those are the the cases that stick with us, the cases that we follow in a bit more detail because maybe there's that sense of it it could have been us or we could have known somebody that was involved in it. So this is a particularly interesting case that sees us examine two separate murders that at first appeared to be linked, but they weren't. The day after murder victim number one was found, murder victim two turned up. Two innocent women found just hours apart in the same area. Two separate murderers. This week's case sees us head to Glasgow as we go back to May 2008. Now, Bethan's uh, put some really interesting facts here about Scotland and Glasgow. So uh, here goes. So Glasgow has the largest economy in Scotland. I bet you didn't know that. It's also the most populous city in Scotland. And it's actually the fourth most populous city in the whole of the UK. It grew from a rural settlement into a large city. And according to Wikipedia, any true crime podcaster's Bible, The wider metropolitan area is home to over 1.8 million people, 
and that equates to around a third of Scotland's entire population. And it's important really to kind of set that scene and that context because the murders that follow, which happened in Glasgow, um, this huge city, this huge metropolis, these murders stayed with the residents of Glasgow, with thousands of people. They really left their mark on the city and the people of Glasgow in a way that we quite often only see in more remote locations, small towns or villages. Um, we don't often see this uh, in other corners of the UK, in, in large cities, but here with these two murders, uh, that, that certainly was the case. The woman at the centre of today's first case is Moira Jones. Moira was a 40-year-old woman, a talented artist, who had studied graphic design before changing path and graduating with an honours degree in business studies. Described as widely loved, popular and successful, Moira enjoyed travel and exploring the world and all of the different cultures that it had to offer. She'd lived in Glasgow for five years, but she was originally from Western in Staffordshire. Moira had grown up in this small village with her parents and younger brother, and at the time of her death, she was a senior partner in a firm. Living in Scotland, she had many opportunities to go out for walks in the surrounding countryside, exploring the glens and the beaches. On the 28th of May in 2008, Moira returned home from a night out. She had driven that night, so when she arrived home, she parked her car near to where she lived, a tenement flat on Queen's Drive, and she made for her front door. Now, Moira's flat overlooked Queen's Park, a 148-acre open space situated on the south side of the city of Glasgow, just a couple of miles from the city centre. And it really is beautiful. It's a great part of the city. And a bit of trivia for any uh, football fans here, the park not only gives its name to a nearby railway station, but it's also what the football team Queen's Park FC was named after. Uh, and the homes surrounding the park are just beautiful, and Bethan's put here the sort of place that she could imagine me living, but I don't think I could afford it by the looks of it. So back to uh, back to Moira. It was just before 11pm when Moira was heading for her front door. She was just yards from home when a man grabbed her from behind and began to drag her away. CCTV footage later showed her well-built six-foot-three assailant forcing her into the nearby park. Petite Moira struggled and fought for her life, suffering numerous defensive wounds in the process. The police described in their appeals how her rings had been torn from her fingers. Five foot four inch Moira, who weighed less than nine stone, was no match for her beast of an attacker. In total, she suffered 65 injuries in an ordeal that lasted up to three hours. She was beaten, stamped on and raped before being left for dead. And I I really was hoping this week's episode would not be as violent as last week's. Um, But this is pretty brutal. But there's no paedophiles this week, so uh, it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? So passers-by heard screams coming from the park during Moira's prolonged attack, but the sounds were dismissed at the time by most and not investigated by others. Various witnesses later told of hearing screams coming from the bushes, and a taxi driver even told his partner, if there has been a murder, then we've just heard it. And we do see this a lot. We saw it, I think a notable case was in the Debbie Lindsley murder the the woman who was murdered on a train bound for london uh, she was in a carriage but other people could hear her 
and it that was a prolonged attack and it was very violent and she was screaming and people could have pulled the cord and stopped the train and it's very interesting the way we behave as humans that that nobody did that and uh, very similar here with um with Moira so whatever the reasons no one phoned the police and nothing was reported that was until 9.45 the following morning when Moira's body was found behind a privet hedge by a park ranger. That sight that morning will surely be one that sticks with him for the rest of his life. Discovering this savagely beaten body, clothes torn off and personal belongings strewn around her. Detective Chief Inspector Derek Robertson was the lead of CID for the south side of Glasgow at the time and he'd previously trained in disaster and victim identification. He had made the bold move and very important move to completely lock down the park, shutting it off to the entire public. Detectives arrived to what was described as a chaotic scene with toiletries and paperwork strewn around the floor around this body who had no identification on her. They checked missing persons reports and began to look through the paperwork and eventually they did discover that the woman was likely to be Moira. Officers headed to her home, forcing entry when they had no answer and family photos confirmed to them that the woman they had found was indeed Moira Jones. They did take her boyfriend in for questioning initially and their suspicions were aroused, uh, particularly so when they realised the reason Uh, that Moira had an overnight bag on her uh, when she was found was that the pair had had an argument uh, on the night that she died. Uh, However, the boyfriend was very quickly eliminated as a suspect. The police set about establishing the time of death in order to narrow down their investigations, as well as to work out the motives. But actually, it was really clear and obvious from the beginning, uh, due to the state of Moira's clothing and her body, this was clearly a savage sexual attack. The lead forensic scientist found evidence to prove that the rape was definitely rape. There was nothing consensual here. It had taken place when Moira was either unconscious or dead and they were able to ascertain that she had not moved after she'd been raped and the police knew that that would be a key piece of information for the prosecution when they eventually got their man and the case went to trial. The police also suggested that this was perhaps not a first-time offender due to the brutal nature of the crime. However, whilst they found a full DNA profile of the killer, frustratingly there were no matches on the system. So this was either a repeat offender who had gotten away with previous crimes or it was perhaps a first-time offender, but that that was very much uh, not thought to be the case because of the brutal nature of this attack. The police scoured CCTV from the local area and compiled a list of anyone who had committed any crimes or offences in or around the park and they also looked into the 11 registered sex offenders who lived nearby. They carried out extensive door-to-door inquiries and took more than 3,000 statements and 250 DNA samples. The police appealed to the public, saying that as the weather that night was particularly heavy with rain, the person responsible must have been soaking wet, probably covered in dirt as they made their way home. So they asked people to think about whether they had a friend, a colleague or even a family member who would come home during the early hours of Thursday morning looking like that. Police quickly established that a bus had captured Moira being dragged along by a killer and Detective Chief Inspector Derek Robertson described the scene in the footage saying, 
He is monstrously bigger than Moira. He has control over her and he has control of her property. He is deciding where she is going. The lead forensic scientist even said, The CCTV from the bus, I think, is the worst thing I have ever seen. It's horrendous. So whilst this CCTV didn't show the attack, it did show uh, Moira being dragged into the park. And they and we know what, what followed. And I think it's always really difficult to watch any footage like that. And I remember talking about it in the Jill Dando episode We saw CCTV footage, not of anything sinister, on the morning of Jill's murder, just of her going about her business, visiting shops, and I think there's just a real sense of impending doom when we watch that footage, knowing what we now know, Uh, and I think that would have been the case here for them, but it was was clearly more um, distressing than the footage of, of Jill, because it shows Moira being dragged away. A man who matched the man seen dragging Moira along was seen leaving the park from a different area at a quarter past two in the morning and separate CCTV images captured this same figure who police said had a distinctive swagger throwing away a laptop and then checking the back of his hand as he walked along. There were some homeless hostels near to the park where investigations were focused and locals to the area had complained uh, that the residents of these hostels, many of whom had addiction problems, had previously attacked passers-by and they said that they'd made the area unsafe at night, particularly so for women. The owners of the hostels were really helpful, giving lists of their occupants to the police as well as CCTV footage, um, but nothing came of this, and I, I think I understand why the police um, went knocking on the doors of these homeless hostels, but I think it's it's kind of sad that they immediately just kind of went there and thought, well, it's going to be someone who was homeless, uh, which actually totally wasn't the case in either of today's murders. Research into previous sex attacks in the area then highlighted a recent unsolved case near the new Victoria Infirmary Hospital. Police conducted further house-to-house inquiries and finally they had a lead and the name of a really firm suspect. Now, I don't know if Bethan just means he is firm or that it was a really firm lead. Uh, A woman called Lucy Petschlova was spoken to during these initial inquiries and she advised she had shared a flat with a man named Marikarkar. She told officers, I was working in a meat factory and he had a job in storage for a clothes shop. But from the very start, I had the feeling it would not be easy with him. He seemed to be a very dominant person. Lucy was from Czech Republic and she had met Slovakian Marek in Liverpool where the two had shared that first flat in order to save costs. Lucy had always dreamt of living in Scotland and so she made the move but soon after Marek followed her there arriving on the 18th of May asking if he could live with her once again. Now, instead of paying towards the bills or the rent, Marek simply drank and smoked and watched porn. He slobbed around and basically just took the piss out of Lucy's hospitality. Lucy said Marek refused to look for work and spent his days and nights downing vodka and strong lager, a bit like Bethan, and that his rage went on a drunken binge would leave her cowering in fear. Definitely not like Bethan that bit. She told the police she felt he was extremely sexually violent because he had in the past propositioned her and then flown into a rage and attacked her when she refused to have sex with him. She had let him share her bed because she only had a small sofa in her makeshift living area 
and he tried twice to have sex with her, eventually grabbing her by the arm and violently trying to force her. On the night Moira had been attacked and killed, Marrick had been in a drunken rage, according to Lucy, and he had told her that he would get rid of anyone who got in his way that night. He described how he once battered a man until he was paralysed. He was shouting that he wasn't afraid of anything or anyone. And he also told Lucy that he was going out to get, quote, whores. And then hours later, he staggered back into the house, smashing a door on his way in and shouting at Lucy again. She could see that he was in a state and she wanted to call the police, but she was so terrified that he would kill her that she decided not to. After that night, Marek seemed stressed. He didn't really speak and he soon headed back to Slovakia, leaving the home that he'd shared with Lucy on the 1st of June without any belongings. Lucy shoved all of his shit into a bag and she told the police about her suspicions. She later told the press, it was the biggest mistake of my life to become his friend. But her bravery meant the police were able to find DNA matching Marek Harkar in her home and it was a clear match to the killer. They knew now they had their man, they had Moira's murderer. Marek Harkar had only been in the UK for 15 months before he killed Moira. His past was filled with violent offences. He had 13 convictions, he'd received a 7-month prison sentence in Slovakia for violent offences, and he had four other convictions in Slovakia and Czech Republic, all of which involved violence. The police were able to track down his movements on the 1st of June when he'd left Glasgow, and they soon learnt that he'd caught a flight to Czech Republic, and then he'd taken a bus over the border back into Slovakia, where he was staying at either his friend's or grandmother's house, depending on which reports you read. Either way, the Crown Office obtained a European arrest warrant and faxed it straight to the Slovakian authorities. Within 24 hours, Harkart was arrested by local police. Among the items recovered when he was arrested was his leather jacket, which was later found to have tiny specks of Moira's blood on it. The extradition process took just four weeks, and on the 16th of July, Harkar arrived back in the UK. Now, this murder shocked the nation, and there was further anger when the revelation that Harkar had been allowed to enter the UK, despite a string of violent convictions, came out in the papers. Harkar protested his innocence, but the DNA evidence and the CCTV footage convinced a jury of his guilt. After a 21-day trial at the High Court in Glasgow, the jury returned a unanimous guilty verdict. By now, it was the 8th of April in 2009, and not only had Moira's family waited almost a year for justice, they had also attended court every day and sat through hours of harrowing evidence. The judge, Lord Brackadale, ordered Harkar to spend a minimum of 25 years behind bars, telling him, Your conduct to that night reflects a level of wickedness very rarely encountered. There was a horrible coldness about the whole thing. It was as if you were totally devoid of human feeling for what you were doing. Harkar spent months appealing his conviction before abandoning that bid and plotting a move home instead. He was transferred from HMP Edinburgh to Carstairs, Lanarkshire in 2015 after doctors deemed him untreatable. 
Then he was held with other sex offenders at HMP Glenakil in Clackmanashire, before finally being flown back to Slovakia to finish his sentence. And I think that was in November of 2016. So he is still there in Slovakia, rotting in his prison cell for what he did to Moira. So, as I said at the beginning of the episode, not only were the police working to hunt the brutal killer of Moira at the end of May in 2008, but they were also attempting to piece together the last movements of a 25-year-old woman called Eleni Pachow. She was killed within 24 hours of Moira, just three and a half miles away at a restaurant called DiMaggio's. The papers were filled with stories detailing how almost 200 officers were involved in the days that followed the brutal deaths of these two women. Police commented at the time that the murders were unprecedented. Moira was discovered in Queen's Park on the Thursday morning. Eleni Pachow was found on the Friday. Originally from Greece, Eleni was working as a trainee manager when she was found by a cleaner, having been stabbed to death in the kitchen of Italian restaurant DiMaggio's. She had moved to the city from Greece as a student in February 2006, initially working in DiMaggio's in Royal Exchange Square before being transferred to the West End branch, where she was being made a trainee manager. She was said to be popular, a young woman who had settled in easily. The main clue the police had about Eleni's last night was a phone call she took at the restaurant. Overheard by a member of staff, the call seemed to involve Eleni saying she would meet someone and then making arrangements. Staff left her to lock up that night and they headed home, which wasn't unusual. The shutters on DiMaggio's were down and had been locked when the cleaner arrived the following morning and discovered her body in the kitchen. More than £1,300 had been taken from the safe at the restaurant. The post-mortem showed that Eleni had died after sustaining 17 stab wounds, wounds that damaged her spleen, kidney and other internal organs and left a hole in her jugular vein. The deepest wound penetrated 13 centimetres and passed through her lung, diaphragm and into her liver. It was also found that Eleni had used drugs including cocaine at some point before she died, but it was established that this did not contribute to her death. Kind of thinking no shit because I'm guessing with 17 stab wounds it was pretty clear that she didn't die of a cocaine overdose. Eleni's hands were also injured, uh, which is typical from defensive wounds. She clearly put up a struggle for her life. Following the discovery of Eleni's body, the police appealed to anyone who was in the area that night, saying Eleni's attacker would have had bloodstained clothing, and they urged anyone who knew anything not to keep it to themselves. And it wasn't long before someone came forward with a name, and the motive was as old as time. Sex and lies and jealousy this time with a bit of debt thrown in for good measure. A waiter at DiMaggio's, a guy named Juan Carlos Crispin, and a cleaner there, the cleaner that discovered Eleni's body, a woman called Marion Hinchelwood, were having what Bethan has called here a naughty affair. I don't think there is any other kind of affair. Um, And these two were having what was described in the media as secret steamy romps when they worked together in the restaurant in Glasgow. Although apparently it was a really obvious affair to anybody who worked there. 
Hopefully they weren't fucking in the kitchen in front of everyone. Obviously, all restaurant staff were questioned in the aftermath of Eleni's death. And Crispin's name had already been put forward at this point anyway. Um, He admitted not only cheating on his partner with Marion, the cleaner, but he said that on the night of Eleni's death, he'd also uh, been trying to cheat with her, basically, and been taking cocaine with her and drinking with her. And he quickly became a prime suspect. His real partner, a woman called Margaret, with whom he had two children, was unaware of his deceitful behaviour. So not only was he having an affair with Marion, the cleaner at the restaurant, he was also trying to um, have an affair with Eleni as well. So this was such a toxic work environment from what I've read and from what Bethan's put here. And Marion, the cleaner at the restaurant, was very jealous of Eleni. She thought that uh, Crispin was having an affair with her, but he told her that Eleni had told him he was she was gay. It, it's just you know he was probably covering his tracks. But but yeah, Marion's having an, an affair with Crispin. Uh, they both work at the restaurant, and Marion is jealous uh, that that Crispin is trying to have an affair with Eleni. So she's jealous of Eleni. She's not really annoyed with Crispin. When questioned outright as to whether he had murdered Eleni, Crispin denied this to the police's face, telling them that an injury he had on his hand was one he had sustained whilst at work, but in fact it had happened during the attack on Eleni. He had also tried to cover up his crime the next day by disposing of clothing and a weapon that may or may not have been used in the attack. So whilst Crispin denied everything to the police, they knew they had their man and they knew that they needed to put some pressure on Marion, the woman that he'd been having an affair with. And Marion told told the truth. She was honest with the police. She told them that she had bought the knife in Woolworths, the knife that had been used to stab Eleni 17 times. And Bethan said here she loved reading uh, that it was bought in Woolworths as that's such a blast from the past. Yeah, if you're listening uh, to this in the UK... Uh, you'll you'll probably hopefully remember them well if you don't remember them well you're probably too young to be listening to this so the trial followed and it was a trial in which Crispin was charged with the murder of Eleni striking her on the head and body with a knife robbing her of a set of keys before opening a safe in the restaurant and taking the contents and attempting to then defeat the ends of justice by disposing of blood-stained clothes and shoes and the knife used during the commission of the crime and he denied everything and Marion initially faced murder charges also but pled guilty to culpable homicide because she admitted to buying the knife that was used and she had checked the rotors to be sure that Eleni would be at work alone so she didn't carry out this murder but she was very much involved in uh, its orchestration The High Court in Glasgow heard that Crispin had tried unsuccessfully to persuade Marion to kill Eleni before carrying out the murder himself. And it turned out that he was in debt. He had about £13,500 worth of debt. And so he saw this as an opportunity to rob the restaurant and get some money. And it would appear that Marion was happy to go along with this plan because she was so jealous of Eleni and she saw her as competition uh, to Crispin's affections. Marion was asked in court, were you obsessed enough to help Mr Crispin irrespective of whether what you were doing was right or wrong? And she answered yes. She also said that on the morning of Eleni's body being found, Crispin had phoned her minutes after she opened up the restaurant and asked her, are the police there? He told her not to panic or say anything. 
So Marion ultimately was jailed for four and a half years for the part she played in the murder of Eleni and Crispin was found guilty of the killing and jailed for life with a minimum term of just 20 years, which is interesting. So two very different murders, just miles and hours apart. And uh, Bethan's put here, she wanted to finish this episode in very Bethan fashion, um, talking a little bit about the Moira Jones Foundation. So in the years following Moira's death, her family struggled on, each trying to help the other, and they had a wonderful support network, which included family, other relatives and and friends. And they did come to realise that they had resources enough to make some choices, even though they could no longer go to work. They knew they had no control over the most important things in life, but they were in the fortunate position that they could afford to organise Moira's funeral, they could afford to travel to the memorial service, have a day or two away from home individually or together. And they became aware that many in similar circumstances would not have had these resources, this money available to them, so they couldn't make these choices and they would then struggle on financially as well as emotionally. And so they started the Moira Jones Foundation to help families going through the loss of a loved one as a result of murder. Statutory organisations and traumatic bereavement charities do wonderful work and help victims in practical and emotional ways. However, their funds are finite and restricted, meaning victims sometimes may not get all the help they need, and so they suffer added distress. They have gone on, this foundation has gone on to help more than a thousand families across the UK and they have um, grants that they give out to families in these situations. The Moira Fund is wholly dependent on unpaid volunteers and fundraising and the running costs are really low and any donation uh, made will be used almost entirely to help those distressed through homicide. And the Moira Fund makes grants to individuals referred through official organisations such as the police and victim support and to those charities which care for families who have lost a loved one through murder or manslaughter. And it's led to an annual event, the Moira Run, significantly held in the park where she lost her life. So if you want to Uh, learn more about the Moira Jones Foundation and and what it does and how you can perhaps contribute and help, Uh, then then have a Google and have a look at it. Uh, I'd not read any of that until I'd um, come to do this episode, so I'll have a proper look into it and see if we can do anything, even if it's just a small donation. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Bethan, as well, for putting this episode together. It's massively appreciated. Apologies, it's a couple of days late this week. It was so hot and I just couldn't be fucked to do anything. So uh, apologies. Hopefully it won't happen again. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. I will be back next week, hopefully on Wednesday, hopefully with something less uh, horrific as this and certainly as as last week's episode. Uh, In the meantime, uh, yeah, take it easy and I'll, I'll see you soon. Bye.